0: Good morning, everybody. Thinking about three phrases or words out of those hymns, Hymn Sunday. First, I've asked some of you before, or asked this before, and not gotten the greatest response, um... One of the words was in the first song was "Here I raise my Ebenezer." Now, who knows what that means? You have to raise your hand. You know dead sure what that means. Or, or the other alternative is utter biblical illiteracy, and there's no nothing in between. Tanner, what does it mean? Okay, He's, he needs a lot of training. Um, <laughs> that you, I'll tell you in, the, in a second. That hymn, Come Thou Found, Here I Raise My Ebenezer, is a reference to Samuel and the Israelites who were going out to face the Philistines in battle. And they were frightened terribly. And Samuel comforted them and consoled them. And he, it says he set up a stone as a witness where they prayed that God would go with them and help them. <clears throat> and he named it Ebenezer, which means, and in that hymn, the next line explained it, Hitherto has the Lord helped us, meaning, God's helped us up to this point in all the battles we've faced. This one now with the Philistines, we will remind ourselves by putting up this stone and naming it, hitherto has the Lord helped us. God's always taken care of us, so he will from from here on. Second term, in the great, one of my favorite hymns, A Mighty Fortress is Our God. Sometime, maybe we'll look at the history of that hymn and what Luther was facing when he wrote it, 1500s. But he said, Lord, the Lord of Sabaoth. Nobody knows probably what that means. But it just means the God of armies, the God of force, the God of war, the God who will fight our battles and will win them. Then, standing here, singing singing, it is well with my soul. A third phrase stood out to me, which turns our attention to one of our families in our body as sorrow like sea billows roll. Most of us by now know Paul Anderson went to be with the Lord last Monday morning. Um, Sudden, either there's calling a heart attack or a pulmonary embolism when a clot goes to your lungs and that will be quick. And that occurred last Monday morning. Um, Please be in prayer, especially for Trish, um, the, day before, the day before they left to go on a journey back to Wisconsin. Um, they were leaving on a Thursday. On Wednesday late afternoon, I talked to Paul about not only the plans for that trip, but future plans of building a different home and so forth. And it's all gone. I mean, all of our plans, all of our wishes, hopes, that's it. God knew about it, and He can help and will, but He does a lot of that through us, our prayers and our support. So, um, the service will not be until February the 12th, that's a Saturday, at 10 a.m., so we'll have that in um the email that goes to everyone and we'll keep it before you but um, who knoweth what a day may bring forth our scripture for this morning is found in john's gospel chapter 4 and i think um, it's a long chapter i don't plan to read all of the verses But the ones I do want to read will read kind of as, I want to just move through it, not read them all up front. This is the story of Jesus traveling through the land of Samaria and resting seated on what they called and was literally Jacob's well. And it's always been a fascinating story to me. And there are a number of themes in it that teach us a lot. I think the overriding theme is that God is always pursuing us. He's always tracking us. He's always... Um, if you you want to use it in a good context, God stalks us because he's trying to reach us. We're the wanderers. We're the rebels. We're the ones that have estranged ourselves from him and are far removed from him. None of us, ever. There isn't a human being alive who ever seeks God first. God always seeks us first. And then it's our unavoidable choice of how to respond to that pursuit from God. There is probably a verse in this passage that um, lines that out clearest. It is in 23. For the Father is seeking such people to worship Him, him. meaning people who will worship Him in spirit and in truth. He's always seeking those. That's the key. God comes after us. Now, there is a pattern here of God taking the initiative, and I think we can see here how God works. And how he brought this woman, and this is a pattern for every one of us, how he brought this woman to the place he wanted her to be and she needed to be, to be reconciled to God. So we'll read the first part here, verses 1 through 6. Now when Jesus learned, I'm reading out of the New English uh, Version, Now when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that he was making and baptizing more disciples than John the Baptist although Jesus himself did not baptize but his disciples did he left Judea and departed again for Galilee and he had to pass through Samaria we'll just stop briefly there going way back to the seven hundreds seven hundred years before this the 12 tribes of israel occupying palestine had a rebellion civil war in a sense the northern 10 tribes withdrew built a different temple established a different kind of religion anointed their own king and walked away from the southern kingdom of judah which was under the household and the dynasty of David. While they were much longer after this happened, two or three hundred years after that rebellion and separation, the king of the Assyrians, his capital was in Nineveh. Today that city is Mosul in Iraq. The king of Assyria by the name of Sennacherib, came down into Palestine, and since the ten tribes of Israel were in the north, in an area called Samaria, the first group of Jews, Israelites, that Sennacherib would have encountered coming down from the really the northeast was the northern tribes of Israel or the Samaritans. He conquered them, depopulated it, carried a mass of them off to captivity into various towns. They never came back. In their, now not all of them, he didn't get rid of everyone, but took a huge number of people. Then imported from his other conquered kingdoms a motley lot of other races, religions, pagans. So you have some people who have sort of a quasi notion of who the Lord God of Israel is, and you have total pagans. The total pagans and the semi-believers in the Lord intermarried, intermingled, which only brought the religious temperature lower okay meanwhile all these centuries the people in Jerusalem who kept the worship of the Lord at the temple that Solomon built and though they were 95% of the time total hypocrites, they still were happy to profess themselves as wonderful people because they still had the temple, they still did all the sacrifices, they did all the rituals, they did the stuff you were supposed to do. And so, as a result, the Jews, we probably don't have much in the way of English to describe the absolute hatred they had for the Samaritans. They despised them, totally despised them. They had nothing to do with them. We'll see that in a moment. But when it says that Jesus was going to go to Galilee, which is up in the north, Sea of Galilee, where his nativity was, uh, or where his childhood was, it says he had to go through Samaria. No, he didn't. If he would have been a normal Jew, They never went through Samaria. They walked north to a certain place. They're on the west of the Jordan River. They crossed the river, adding miles to their trip, walked up the east side of the Jordan to get past Samaria. And then when they got into the region of Galilee, crossed back over the river, and went to that part of Israel where Jesus grew up. But they went to extra expense, extra effort, extra everything, just not to go through Samaria. Despised them. They wouldn't even walk on their their ground. They felt like they would be unclean if they set foot on the dirt in Samaria. Okay? So Jesus didn't have to. If he would have been like the rest of them, he'd have done that jog, never had anything to do with them. But he took the direct route, and he does it for a reason. He left Judea, verse 3, and departed again for Galilee, and he had to go through Samaria. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well, and it was about the sixth hour, which is noon. We'll stop there. The first thing God does in pursuing us that is contained in this little passage of one through six, he plans. God is always planning This was not an accident that Jesus ends up at this well sitting there at noon resting while his disciples went into the town to buy some lunch. Nothing, when it comes to the salvation of our souls, there's absolutely nothing that's an accident. Nothing that is merely chance. God knows exactly what he's doing. He, God, remember, he knows all things, past, present, future. He knew before he, literally, before God ever said, let there be light and created this world. He knew. He knew this day was coming. Jesus knew. He planned for this particular day and that particular time to be sitting there on the edge of that well. The thought that I can't get across because I just don't have the ability to do it. That the God of the universe spoke the heavens into being. Made heaven, earth, the sea, and everything that's in it. Would plan that meticulously. To intersect our lives, her life, to redeem her, to call her and us to Himself. Somehow that has to sink into us. That what God goes to, the links He goes to, to reach out and find us. So He comes here to this well. This woman shows up again, not accidentally. He placed himself there because he knew she was coming to the well to draw water. Now, I won't go into too much here, but it was not necessarily customary for the women did this kind of work. Um, I won't go into all that. Listen, under the gospel in the New Testament Um, God elevated the status of women. Um, These would be large pottery jars that they would fill with water running a bucket down into that well pulling it up. It is still there to this day. It's estimated that it was probably around 150 to 180 feet deep. So you run some vessel down and you rope it back up and you pour it in, and I don't know how many buckets they had to pour in, and then this stone or pottery jar would be hoisted up on a shoulder or a head, carried back, and it was a little bit more than a quarter of a mile into this little village. You didn't normally go there at noon. You usually got it first thing in the morning or last thing in the evening, so you'd have water through the day. And occasionally people would have to go there at different hours. But this indicates, I think, to some degree, the status of this woman in the town, possibly, that she was a little bit of pushed to the side. We'll see in a moment possibly why that's the case. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you a Jew ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? In parentheses, for Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. So she was just as aware as Jesus was of the absolute had nothing to do with each other between these two peoples <clears throat> Jesus answered her in verse 10 if you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you give me a drink you would have asked him and he would have given you living water the woman said to him sir you have nothing to draw water with the well's deep where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well, drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. Jesus said to her, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give them will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. Here's the second thing. Not only did Jesus meticulously plan to be at this well when that woman showed up, but second, he prompts, or even I was thinking you could use a word, he provokes our thinking. He prompts us. Every one of us who's ever found their way to God, We'll remember times when we are far away from God. And really, almost like one of the Psalms says, God is not in all their thoughts. We don't even think about God much. But something occurs, maybe nothing spectacular at all, but something jars my thinking, prompts my thinking. I start thinking about myself. God may have a blurry notion of who God is, Some sense of need, some sense of hollowness in here, and loss. People ask themselves, what's my purpose? Remember someone attending my first church when I was in my 20s, and this young couple moved in across the street from Liz and I, and they started coming to our church, and we invited, their, got their kids to come to vacation Bible school. And anyway, they started coming to church a little bit. And much later, I didn't know this, they both finally got saved, became lifelong Christians, still keep in touch with me. Um, but later, the husband told me that an old, you know, kind of elevator music, lounge music, you know what I mean? Back the Perry Como days, that really dates me. Um, but you know, that kind of, you know, this stuff. Um, is There was an old song by some woman, I can't remember her name, Is That All There Is? Now, if you're old enough to remember that, and the tune comes to your mind, get on the list for legacy. But there, I faintly remember this loungy kind of thing, Is That All There Is? And he said that, Dumb song just drove him nuts, and it was about his life. He said, I kept thinking, is this all there is? Now, he wasn't some kind of a dud. He had advanced degrees. He was a college professor in Portland, but it was, is this all there is? God got him thinking. (laughs) Jesus intentionally, I don't know if he really wanted a drink. Or needed one but he asked her he opened the conversation give me a drink and of course she's surprised and then he moves the conversation if you knew who you were talking to you'd ask me for the kind of water that I can give you rather than you give to me no one's as good as God for beginning to prompt our thoughts and he, he's, he just kind of embeds himself somewhere in the edge of our minds. And we just don't quite have, the, we never can quiet that little voice and that tug and that prompting. He prompts us. And so he, this woman didn't have a clue what he was talking about. He knew that. But he knew he'd get her to where she did figure it out. So he gives her this, Prompting. And she says, "She, we get clear to the end here of this passage, and she says, Sir, give me this water so I won't be thirsty or have to come here anymore. He ends up also bringing us to the point where whatever it is he's talking about, even though we don't know it very clearly, I want it. She still is... Completely unaware of what he's really talking about. But he's created an appetite in her heart for, well, whatever this man's talking about, I want to know more about it. He's good at that. And here's what he did. He, this isn't bait and switch by any means. But he, he brings this woman to where she says, I want to know more. I, whatever this water of life is, I want it give it to me. Notice the shift here. In verse 16, Jesus said to her, go call your husband and come here, bring him here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. That's all she said. Notice that wasn't the whole story. Because Jesus said, you are right in saying I have no husband for you've had five husbands and the one you now have is not your husband. What you've said is true. The woman said to him, (laughs) I've looked, i thought, yeah, I'll bet. Sir, I think you're a prophet. (laughs) Yes, sir. Here's the third thing in this process. Jesus Plans, prompts. Then, when we reach, when we come to where I want what you've got, there's a price for it. There's a price for it. And it involves, he prosecutes. He charges us. He's a prosecutor. He's the prosecuting attorney who reads the charges against us. So, Go get your husband. Well, I don't have a husband. Now, did she lie? Oh, you know, people can get real nitpicky. Um, No, but was she forthright? Of course not. But Jesus filled in the blanks that she left. And listen, lest, lest anybody think we're any better than whatever we may think of this woman, and it could have been that the people in the town, this, couldn't, this was a small town. If, you're, if you've been married and divorced five times, they probably know about it. I imagine that at the local you know, bridge club or whatever, they, they gossip out about her. That may have been why she was at the well when most of the women of the village weren't. Okay? But that, if that's true, that's another thing that I love about Jesus He timed it to get there when she was trying to sneak around because she was downtrodden, beaten up on. And Jesus knew this too. He knew everybody that was on her case was no better than she was. They could have looked down and thought, well, but what were they doing? Maybe totally different. Maybe they didn't have that kind of a reputation. So what? They were as bad, as wicked, and as lost as she was. And I think, I'm not certain, but I kind of think what we know about Jesus, that's another reason he went out there at noon, was to go to someone someone who was beaten down, kind of ashamed, estranged, outcast. He likes those kind of people. He goes after them. But he prosecutes. He will not let us slide by. He will tell you, yes, I know what you think before you think it. I know what you say before the words are formed in your mouth. I know what you do before, I know what you're going to do before you do it. I know. I know. We're always, our it's second nature. It's like breathing. We don't even think about it. We cover up our own view of ourselves. We do our best to uh, create a facade. Jesus knows the real truth here. And here's the problem with Jesus He won't leave it alone, ever. But it's the kindest thing He can ever do. How mad do we get? When we think here, how mad would we get if we go to the doctor and we think, you know, we just got a cold or a cough or, you know, simple something, I need, you know, whatever. And unknown to us, we have some deadly disease, there's a tumor somewhere, and that doctor informs us to our shock, would we be mad at him? Not if we've got any sense. We'd be grateful. So when we think, I got it together, Jesus pokes his finger and he says, yeah, you did. You did tell the truth, but not all of it. (laughs) Here's the story. Well, then her response here is, it's kind of interesting. I don't know all she had in her mind here, but in the nineteenth verse, then she gets interested in religion. <laughs> um, let's visit about uh, what? What about uh, the Catholics? And the, you know, because she says, oh, "I think you're a prophet," then she immediately launches into, "Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say then Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship." Now that didn't have anything to do with anything. Really? That's, well, what about the Methodists and the Presbyterians? What, are the, what do they believe? Jesus said, look, neither in this mountain, which happened to be named Gerizim, okay? It was where they had built their competing temple to the one in Jerusalem and where they set up their own worship. Don't need to go into all that the Samaritans believe, but they only believed, they only accepted as scripture the first five books of the Old Testament that Moses wrote. All the rest of the prophets, with a few little exceptions, they denied and didn't believe in the Old Testament. Of course, the Jews accepted the entire Old Testament as Scripture, and so did Jesus. So she's bringing up differences between denominations, as it were. And Jesus said, look, It doesn't matter if you worship here. Now, he doesn't say that he doesn't care about theology and so forth. But he said, whether you worship here or whether you worship in Jerusalem, going to the right place, the right rituals, the right prayers, so forth. He said, all that's going to be done away with because right now, the Father is seeking those who worship in spirit And in truth, what did he mean? He meant that the outward formalities of religion you can practice and go straight out into eternity and be lost. It doesn't matter, he said, if you go through all these religious motions. They don't save you, whether it's Jerusalem or Gerizim. The Father is looking for people to worship from the heart. Now, it does not never mean that to worship from the heart does not include outward acts, certain behaviors that are and aren't prescribed. But he makes it clear that heart religion is from the heart. It's not in a code. It's not in checking the boxes. It's not in saying the prayers and doing this and doing... That won't save me. It's not in even, it's not in the sacraments. Obviously, I believe in baptism. I believe, I don't, we don't make an issue of it. I believe in infant baptism. It's practiced from the days of the apostles. There are some people that get choked up and, you know, they get in some kind of apoplectic fit over children being baptized. They should choose for themselves. No eight-day old Israelite decided that he wanted to be circumcised and enter into the covenant of Abraham, okay? So that doesn't hold in water. It is, a, it, whether it's infant baptism, but there are a lot of churches who have lifted that to where it saves you at birth, and all you have to do from then on is re- recall that with the certificate, I was baptized when I was a week old. I'm fine. No, you're not. God's not opposed to baptism, but he is opposed to depending on that to save me. He says, I'm looking for people that worship from down in here in your heart. And in truth, truth means I walk and believe things that are according to God's revealed word. It's not men's ideas. It's the Bible. What does the Bible say? And whatever it says, I adapt to it like yesterday, okay? Period. That's what it means, worship in spirit and in truth. So the third thing, fourth thing that Jesus does, after planning, prompting, prosecuting, he prescribes. And he concludes this little talk with her about God speaking, seeking those who worship spirit and truth. This woman responds, and she does have enough knowledge. She has some, because in 25, she says, I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. Now, she was straight on that. Even though she was a fouled-up Samarian, with partial Bible knowledge, she at least knew there's a Messiah coming and he'll reveal God to us and he will teach us all things. Now, this statement here, the next sentence, <clears throat> is one of the most prominent ones and it's, it's extremely rare. Most of the time Jesus didn't come out and say, I am the Messiah. He would be clear enough but he would sort of hint because he knew people would go crazy and try to make him a king. They had a wrong idea of of the Christ. Here, to this poor, downtrodden, dear, partially intellectually, scripturally, ill-informed, he gives the clearest revelation, I think, anywhere in his whole ministry. I that I'm speaking to you, I'm the Christ. I'm that one you say when he comes. He'll teach us everything. Yeah, I know. I'm him. That's where God's always trying to bring us face-to-face with Jesus. It's like Pilate. I don't know if Pilate had ever seen Jesus before, but there's a little phrase, little word, little verse in Matthew. It's just a very short sentence. They hauled him in for his sham trial before Pilate. But I've I've preached on this before, and it's a tremendous little statement. And Jesus stood before the governor. Period. He was on Pilate's hands. He was right in front of Pilate. And Pilate squirmed and did everything he could to slither out of that, and he couldn't get out of it. Wanted to let him go. His wife sent a message and said, I've had a dream. Don't have anything to do with him. He's a a righteous man. Pilate did everything he could to try to not do something with Jesus. It's impossible. Jesus stands before me, every last one of us. We will do something with him. We'll either receive him bow the knee to him, make him Lord of our heart and life, and invite him into our hearts, or we reject him. But nobody dodges it. So Jesus said, you're looking at him. What are you going to do? Well, at the end of this little passage, which goes to, as I said, 26, the disciples... show up and um, end the conversation for all intents and purposes. Now it wasn't an interruption because Jesus knew how much time he needed to talk to her and he got to the bottom line with her. But then I want you to notice if we drop down to verse 28 the woman left her water jar and went away into town And said to the people, come, see a man who told me all that I ever did. (laughs) Can this be the Christ? They went out of the town and were coming to him. Then dropped down to 39. Many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony, saying, he told me all that I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them, and he stayed there two days. And many more believed because of his word. Then they said to the woman, It's no longer because of what you said that we believe. For we have heard for ourselves. And we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. The last thing Jesus persuades. He convinces us. Now, that's not against our will. It is a decision of our will to be persuaded but all it's my final response to all that has gone on before Jesus plan and his prompting and his unpleasant prosecution of poking his finger you know what you are and what you did it is his prescription this is the way it has to be and notice when he said, I am he. That's not plural. He didn't say. Now listen, I want you to know, dear woman, there are lots of ways to heaven. There are people who don't believe in Jesus. But, you know, if you're a Hindu or you're a Muslim or you're whatever, we all, we're, we're all seeking the same God. We're all going to the same place. That is not true. It's not true. He said, I'm the one. There aren't any others. There is no Savior. And they came to that point where they say, you are the Savior of the world. That's where God's trying to get every last human being. Every one of us. Have we been through that process? Or maybe could you identify, if you've not gotten to that point of, I trust you, Jesus, I know you're the savior of the world, which is my savior. I want you to be my savior, my Lord, my God. I invite you into my heart. And since you're the one, I take orders from you. Whatever you direct me, I do it. If we're not to that point, where are you in that process? God takes his time, doesn't beat up on us. He draws us. Can we identify where we're at? Where you're at in that process? And you know what the end is that God's aiming for. We'll do something this morning I haven't done. But after we are dismissed, <clears throat> I would like for and one last thing and I know I'm one minute over, nursery people have mercy on me. Um, notice that when the this was a private conversation. And even when the disciples showed up, they weren't going to be a problem. But he, the conversation ended. Um, a lot of God's dealings with us are very private, very personal. Um, now we have in many, many, many churches for hundreds of years, the practice of at the conclusion of a sermon, inviting people to come and kneel at a place of prayer. And I'm all for that. I grew up with it, seen it forever. But I never got saved, made ground spiritually, had my heart purified by faith in sanctification, at an altar in a public place, I was all by myself. So there's nothing magical or required about, you know, publicly responding to a sermon. Um, God's God's a pretty good in the older days that you used to call people. That prayed with others at the altar. Altar counselors. They were Christians. Who had been this road. And they helped others. Maybe stumbling with it. Last I checked. Jesus is a pretty good altar counselor. So if I'm. Alone. In my. I got right with God. Kneeling beside my bed nobody there was nobody else there but god was he filled that room so what i want to do today we'll pray be dismissed and i want you just just discreetly i want you to just put your name and your phone number way to get in touch with you on some piece of paper you can get maybe a tithe envelope in front of you um i don't care i want you to just slip that to me that'll let me know you would like me to get in touch with you and visit about where you're at and all this so that's completely private but i want you to do it if you feel like god has prompted your heart you think you know where you're at in this process but you do know I've never gotten to the end. I know that's ha- not happened. Write your name down if you want to find out some more. It helps me pray for you. Helps me know where you're at. So I'd like to ask you to do that when I'm at the back door, you can just slip me a piece of paper and I'll get in touch with you. Let's bow our heads. Dan, I'll ask you to come and dismiss us.
1: Father in heaven, this morning as our pastor was sharing your word, I was prompted with this thought, and I think it's a good way to end this service. We learned this morning the extent that you'll go through that you'll go to to pursue us to have a relationship with you. You go to an extent, Lord, that should just put us in a state of awe. How far you'll reach out, what you've done to redeem us back into a relationship with you. The question you prompted me with this morning, Lord, in my heart, is to what extent will you go to follow me? So that's the question I leave before us this morning as we close this service to be in awe of what you've done and the extent that you've went through, how you pursued us, to redeem us back into a relationship with you, to to offer that to us. But, Lord, as a congregation, I guess the question is, how far, what extent will we go to to follow you? Help us with that this day, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Love you guys. You are dismissed. Have a great day, everyone.